How does this pitch for a profession sound? Part superhero, part fortune teller, part trusted advisor. We love what we do. It only makes sense that ours is a top-ranked job. After all, we earn high incomes in low-stress environments. We enjoy a harmonious work-life balance. Our work is intellectually stimulating. This career comes with one great perk, the satisfaction of solving problems and having an impact. Sounds pretty good. Which profession? Any, any guesses? Any thoughts? It's from the website beanactuary.org. Now, I don't know if there are any actuaries here, but a lot of people do think an actuary is someone who sits in an office looking at your insurance application, predicts the time of your natural death, the likelihood of early death by misadventure or disease, and thus what your premium should be if your application is accepted. Now, actuaries do much more than that. Check the website. And their work does have an impact on important business decisions. According to the website, one problem actuaries have is that they are frequently mistaken for accountants. There was at least one actuary in our neighborhood in Halifax, and I knew he was an actuary, not an accountant, because his license plate said, actuary. And he was very proud of his possession. He also tended to drive through the neighborhood a little too fast. One night as his car whizzed past me in a crosswalk, I wondered if there was such a thing as an actuarial emergency. But the wealthy farmer Jesus tells about should have consulted an actuary before starting his construction project. Now, of course, an actuary couldn't have predicted when God would come calling, although if the farmer had shown any sign of faith, the actuary might have allowed for the possibility that God could come calling earlier than expected. But the farmer asked just one person for advice himself, and the advice wasn't sound financially, financially, actuarially, or theologically. Now, Jesus tells this story in Luke's Gospel as part of a much longer set of teachings about priorities, values, money, possessions, how we use them, and how they affect and change us. Jesus talks about money and possessions more than any other subject mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And someone did a count of the whole Bible and found 500 verses on prayer, 200 about faith, and 2,000 that have to do with money. And that's not counting texts about land, which is the most precious and problematic commodity for ancient Israel and people in Jesus' time. The man who comes and wants Jesus to set his brother straight wants a share of land. He and his brother have inherited the family farm. Jewish custom and Roman law say 
they can divide it and then live side by side as neighbors, if not partners. Selling it off is unthinkable. This man doesn't want Jesus to mediate, not that Jesus would do that. He wants Jesus to affirm him and declare his rightful ownership, as if Jesus would do that. And I imagine everyone who overhears is horrified. Rightful ownership is what we say. When it comes to land, the concept of ownership really doesn't exist for Jesus and his people. Land is held in trust for God, for the good of the community, not just the family, and certainly not just for two brothers. The NRSV says, who made me a judge or arbitrator? It's literally divider. Jesus will not assist in the breakup of a relationship, especially one of two people who hold a sacred trust. Jesus offers a proverb, beware of all kinds of greed. Your life's worth more than all you own, no matter how much that is. Now back to the parable and the man who should have consulted an actuary before investing in new barns. The story doesn't start with the farmer. It starts with the land. The land produces abundantly. The good earth, the sun and rain, God's blessing, yields a crop to be celebrated and shared. Now, listen for the pronouns. He thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul. With each statement, he moves further and further away from community, from stewardship of the land, from God. There's, there's no word of thanks to God. There's no request for help or guidance. Now, we might say he has a right to do as he chooses. No one would say that in first century Palestine. He speaks to his own soul as if he's its own creator, as if his life is his own, and he can be sure it will go on for many more years. There's an echo of Psalm 14 here. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Ah, but there is. You fool, says God, I'll call your precious soul home tonight. Then who will own those new barns and all that's in them? So it is, says Jesus, with those who store up treasures for themselves but are not rich toward God. Scholar Walter Brueggemann comments on this parable in Jesus' teaching on money and possessions. He says, the insistence that possessions are gifts and not achievements or accomplishments is a decisive check in biblical faith on any temptation to imagine self-sufficiency or autonomy. I once attended an adult Sunday school class in a Presbyterian church in Atlanta. The guest speaker was Ray Anderson, a, a member of a neighboring Methodist church, 
And he talked about the ways big businesses can take leadership in care for creation. He was the CEO of one of the largest manufacturers of carpets in the world. Now, making synthetic carpeting requires huge inputs, almost all of which originate in fossil fuels. And a lot of the time, most of the time, rugs are torn up and thrown away long before they're worn out. He had begun to transform as much of his company's work as possible into a closed system where the main source of material for new carpeting was his own company's recycled carpets. He shared a vision from someone he said was more of a philosopher than he was. He said, much would change if we stopped seeing things we bought for our homes, like rugs and furniture, things we would wear out or tire of before they wore out, if we stopped seeing them as commodities, bought, owned, and then disposed of as if they don't exist anymore. Think instead, he said, of furnishing a home or business as leasing an environment. We could, we could still decide when the term was up, but we would return what we had rented to the manufacturer. Manufacturers would take back what was their property and decide what to do with it. Now, of course, they could also offer new leases on new rugs and sofas. But Ray Anderson believed if his company could change course and find cost-effective ways to recover and recycle their own product and continue to profit, others surely could. Not purchasing possessions to use and discard, but leasing an environment to live in. Not seeing what we have, what we enjoy, what enhances our lives as possessions, but as gifts to be used and enjoyed for the term of our lives, until our lives return to God. A prayer that I have often included in funeral services is a request for the living, that God would help us learn to hold the gift of life lightly, not loosely, but lovingly. Now, it's difficult to do that, I know I find it hard, but the most joyful and least anxious people I have come to know in all my years in ministry have learned to do just that, including people who know they are dying and people just beginning their adult lives. And that attitude extends to money and possessions. Hold them lightly, not loosely, but lovingly. And how about the earth we live on? We don't need an actuary to remind us that time will run out for each and all of us. An actuary would remind us that we make choices along the way that make that time run out for us more rapidly.
time is the only gift we are given that has a limit on it. Everything else is given to us in abundance. And where there are people in the world who don't have enough, it's mostly because those who have more than enough don't share enough. But in the end, it's not the treasure we gather and grasp or anything we believe we have earned in this life, even the good deeds we remember we've done, that matter. It seems using each moment of the time we are given, using it well, not alone, for the good of others and ourselves and the world. Giving, sharing, enjoying leads to that full life the farmer believed he could make for himself. And I'm not sure what those words, rich toward God, really mean, but I guess living that way does make us rich toward God. Amen. Glory to God.